Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And I'm now building Sky Therapeutics, a digital therapeutics startup developing therapeutic video games. My name is Shad. I'm a physician and a Harvard MBA and a co-founder of the digital therapeutic startup Sky Therapeutics. I'm very excited today that we will have uh, Dr. Farzad Mustashari and Adam Beckman as our guests for the episode. Dr. Farzad Mustashari has spent his career on the forefront of healthcare policy and health information technology. He is the co-founder and CEO of Alidate, a primary care enablement company that partners with independent private care practitioners to help them transition to value-based care. Farzad is the former national coordinator for health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. He founded the New York City Primary Care Information Project, which equipped 1,500 physicians in underserved communities with electronic health records, facilitating the adoption of prevention-oriented health IT. Farzad received his MD from Yale University and his master's in population health from Harvard. He also did an internal medicine residency at Mass General Hospital. Adam Beckman is a joint MD-MBA student at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School, graduating this spring. Adam took a leave of absence from the MD-MBA program in 2021 to serve as the special advisor to U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. In 2021, Adam worked with the White House on COVID-19 pandemic, health misinformation, and mental health. Before medical training, Farzad hired Adam to work full-time at Alidate back in 2016 and 17. In 2022, Adam was featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 for the healthcare category. Adam holds a Bachelor of Science from Yale University. Farzad and Adam, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Great. Really excited about the conversation today. Farzad and Adam, the first question is for both of you. Can you share a bit about your childhood, your decision to pursue a career in medicine, and your eventual decision you know, to venture off the beaten path or to stay on the clinical path? So let's start with you, Farzad, and then would love to, uh, to hand it over to you, Adam. Yeah, um, I, uh, I grew up in Iran, and I always thought that um, I would want to give back in, in a public health uh, way. They was thinking about international public health initially. I did school public health um, after undergrad. Uh, but then I, I fell in love with clinical medicine and the laying on of hands. Um, and, and I did med school and residency. And then I flipped back to the public health side and did the CDC's epidemic intelligence uh, service and, and stayed in the New York City Health Department for, for 10 years. Um, but always on, on kind of the margins between uh, public health and, and health care, um, which I guess now you would call population health. 
So um, more, you know, in, in more ways than one, feeling like an, like an outsider, insider. Amazing. Thank you, Farzad. Over to you, Adam. Yeah, I mean, I think medicine similarly at a high level drew me in for its values. Um, uh, a focus in medicine on listening, on building relationships, on addressing structural wrongs and social justice. Um, those were core themes in my upbringing and in my family, including my grandmother, who's a social worker in her, in her 90s, still taking care of patients. Um, and I think that was a piece I was searching for in in a career. Um, to the extent, you know, venturing off the beaten path, I'm not sure if I really qualify yet as venturing off the beaten path. I'm in my effectively fifth or sixth year of graduate school. Um, but I've had the chance to explore different parts of medicine, of public health, population health, government, startup world. And I've benefited enormously from mentors and teachers, people like Farzad, who have created that path, um, who have shown examples. There are now many examples, I think, of people who have figured out ways to combine a career in clinical medicine with work in government or in the private sector, addressing systems level problems. Um, and I, I don't take that for granted because uh, there was a time, as I understand it, where that was really hard to do and people looked at you like, what are you trying to do? So that's played a big role in me trying to figure out each of my next steps. Yeah, no, thank you, Adam. Thank you for that. And a quick follow-up point on that. I'd love to understand what were the points in your medical journey where you realized that, you know, there is potential for you to build a career outside of the standard clinical path of pursuing residency and being a practicing clinician. So maybe Farzad, would you be able to share a few insights there? And then after that, over to you, Adam. I always, <laughs> I always thought that uh, I'd want to uh, have an impact that went beyond the people I could directly uh, heal and touch in, in clinical care. Um, I remember doing my uh, uh, intern report um, on uh, uh, Brainerd diarrhea. Guys, have you guys heard about what Brainerd diarrhea is? No. No? Oh, my God. It's the most amazing feat of pure epidemiology because the disease was characterized, the public health aspects of it, the epidemic control aspects of it were characterized. Uh, this is Minnesota under, under legendary Mike Osterholm Health Department through a series of outbreak investigations. Um, and no causative agent was ever found. And yet we know a lot about this, this disease and how it's transmitted and how it stopped and everything about it. And, and it was pure epi. Uh, and that was, my, that was kind of my, my intern, intern uh, report um, in, in clinical care. And I did, I did a rotation in Haiti during, our, during, during residency uh, thinking about international public health work. So I, I always suspected that I was going to do something more than, than just clinical care. Adam, how about you during your medical education? Uh, what were the points that, you know, what were maybe the interactions or the conversations that you've had that made you realize that it's possible for a medical doctor or for a medical student to actually, you know, pursue opportunities or experiences beyond the traditional clinical ones? Yeah, an important one for me was when I was in college, uh, I met someone named Greg Gonzalez, who 
helped create the Global Health Justice Partnership, uh, which was a partnership at Yale Law School between the law school, the School of Public Health, involved the medical school. And that was around the time that a new generation of hepatitis C medications had been launched. And Greg was locked in on the question of what was access to these medications going to look like in carceral settings, in jails and prisons. And over the course of several years, I got to be working with him in this broader coalition that involved lawyers, epidemiologists, public health students, medical experts and physicians, prison administrators, administrators, government officials, in trying to answer that question, in trying to first just show that there were so many people who needed and should qualify for access to these medications in in prisons but couldn't access them and then going a step further and trying to figure out how to address those and through my interactions with that group and the physicians in it I both saw you know how clinical medicine was special and and drew me but also the ways in which it really took a broader coalition to affect things that really mattered to patients one of the one of the things that um, your audience may go through or may have gone through is you're in the ER and someone comes in with something. It could be an asthma attack. It could be a gunshot wound. It could be anything, right? And you, if you find yourself wondering, not just, all right, what is the nebulizer treatment course for someone with difficulty breathing because of asthma? But if you find yourself thinking, why this person? Why today? Why from this neighborhood? Then you're probably the kind of person who's going to be looking for opportunities to extend beyond clinical care. If you're the kind of person who says, you know, why do we, why is the hospital structured this way? Yeah. You know, like, why is it that the head of cardiology seems to have a lot more clout than the head of primary care? Yeah. Right then you may be the kind of person who, who needs to, to be satisfied, isn't going to be satisfied um, with the purely uh, within medicine roles. Thank you, Farzad. I love that reference to curiosity. And to your point about how interesting pandemics are and how interesting epidemic investigations are, I remember when I did a master's in healthcare systems in the UK, we had Harold Jaffe, who was one of the instrumental investigators in the CDC's HIV initial investigations, run a pandemic simulation for the class around the new disease. And we had to think about a lot of questions on you know, uncovering the mode of transmission, the nature of the agent. And it's really exciting. So thank you for that. I kind of, when you mentioned that example, I immediately thought back to that class. But I'm going to hand it over now to Shad for uh, the second question from his side. But thanks, Adam. Thanks, Farzad. Thanks, Alex, and uh, great conversation so far, Adam and Farzad. I wanted to sort of narrow the discussion towards really like the, the role of a physician in, in the public health world and dig into that a little bit more. Looking into y'all's background, it's really, really fascinating. I remember, Adam, reading that you said that, quote, the policies governments set often affect a patient's health as much as any decision made in the clinic. 
And this influenced your decision to pursue a career in medicine and health system reform. And that in turn recently led to a role in the federal government as an appointee in the Biden administration. While Farzad, uh, you said that you felt that the big thing that we needed to do in, in healthcare was not only the right policies, but the execution of those policies into the field. And after spending a chunk of your career creating policy in Washington, D.C., you're now running Allidade, the company you co-founded in 2014 to help independent physician practices transition to value-based models. And you both occupied a governmental role that puts you in, the, in a place of power to affect systemic change. And so I'm curious for the both of you, why was it important to you first as a physician, Farzad, or a physician in training, Adam, uh, to get involved in shaping healthcare policy rather than just being shaped by healthcare policy? And what unique insights were you both able to offer as clinicians in training and physicians when you were interacting with government officials and career politicians, most of whom likely were not clinicians themselves. So would love to start with you, Adam, and then hand it over to you, Farzad. Adam? Look, I would start with something that Farzad started talking with me about back in 2017 when I was I was actually working at Allidade for 2016 to 2017 and then decided that I was going to go to medical school. And Farzad gave me a, a pep talk, a speech before... I was heading out and he said something that stuck with me, which was, you're only going to get to experience your first year on the wards once. You're only going to get to walk around the hospital, walk into patients' rooms, sit in meetings and see everything with fresh eyes once. Uh, So pay attention and write down things that seem strange or don't make sense or can't be explained, obviously. Um, and so I did. I ended up uh, keeping a list of handwritten notes that turned into dozens and dozens and dozens of pages and would talk regularly with with Farzad about some of these examples. Um, and the reason I bring that up in relation to government is because I think this is one of the defining ways that physicians, but more broadly clinicians, anyone who has worked providing clinical care brings to government, uh, which is that hands-on, up-close experience. Um, Samantha Power gave a commencement speech at Yale in 2016 where she talked about getting close. Her main advice to people graduating was get close, move beyond approaching an issue just through the screen of your laptop or a phone or somebody else's interpretation uh, and, and find a way to get to know real people whose lives are impacted by what you're talking about. That's almost a direct quote from her. And I think that when I was had the chance to work for a brief period in government, not nearly in a role like Farzad's, but getting to understand parts of how government uh, bodies make decisions, I was struck over and over again by the way that clinicians could ground really important and consequential decisions in the experience of the patient they took care of last week. And that's really powerful and important, I think. Thank you, Adam. Over to you, Farzad. I think people uh, sometimes talk derisively about a revolving door between public sector, private sector. I think that's just dumb. Like That's exactly what you want. You want policymakers who've been in the real world, who have a granular sense of what's happening and can bring that insight and, and contact with the field into, into policymaking. And then you want them to exit. <laughs> and they need to out, go out there, I think, 
and 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 look, there there are some folks who are, who are career um, uh, policymakers, and and that, that's fine. But those are the people who tend to be most hungry for uh, for contact with with what's 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 really happening. But I think the policymaking is what sets the rules of the game. And you can't set good rules of the game if you don't understand what's happening in the scrum. But then once you have the rules of the game set, you also need players who will embrace those opportunities, move in the direction that policy wants people to move. Um, and I, I, think, I think that uh, ability to see close and then see far and then see close and then see far uh, I think that's a very helpful, um, helpful engine. Uh, so I would encourage more people to, if you ever have an opportunity, and this is what I advised Adam, if you ever have an opportunity to go do public service, do it. And you may only do it for a couple of years, and that's okay. But you will, you will carry in with you your your experiences, and you will carry out with you an understanding of the broader um, uh, context within which we all operate. Think, yeah, go ahead, Adam. I was just going to add that um, Farzad lives this in his own organization. In years ago when I was at Allidade, you know, the, I, I remember distinctly a, a software engineer who had no interest in going out to the primary care clinics that we were working with. His job was to write code. And most other technology companies or startups would have let him do that. And Farzad was insistent that he wanted every single person, no matter what your function in the organization was, to be out in Kansas or Mississippi or Tennessee sitting in a primary care clinic, spending an entire day just watching. Um, and it's powerful. Thank you, Adam and Farzad. Really, really insightful answers here. I wanted to reflect on a couple of your points. I think, first of all, Adam, what you said about writing things down, being curious and observing things that don't make sense. I know you got that first from Farzad being a mentor of yours. That really, really resonates. You know, oftentimes a lot of people who watch our podcast or listen to our podcast who may be 18, 19, 20 years old, who are pre-meds or just starting medical school, they'll jump on a Zoom with me and say, hey, and like, five, 10 years, how can I be where you are, you know, starting your own company? And I always say that's sort of asking the wrong question because you have to go out there and find stuff that excites you. And you can't find things that excite you if you don't, you know, observe the world. And so I think starting from that place of curiosity, generically speaking, always will be a good thing because you can sort of soup in and observe and find interesting insights. And then you'll find unique pain points, for example, and can execute on those pain points if you want to start a company, for example. So I really appreciated that point. Farzad, your point about a revolving door and living in this intersection of different disciplines is a very exciting one and an interesting one. Our first guest, Dan Gabramadine, who is uh, an investor at Flare Capital, he actually said that when he finished business school and one of his first jobs to, was to go work at a payer at an insurance company, and a lot of his clinical buddies told him that he had, you know, quote unquote, gone to the dark side. And I think most of it was in jest, but there is a, some truth to the fact that, you know, some clinicians and some people in the healthcare space may feel that way, may have that sentiment. But I really do think it's at the intersection of different disciplines 
that's really where you can get amazing progress. And so physicians have this unique perspective, like you said, Adam, and they have the potential to impact change and linking up with people who are non-clinicians or who may be you know, coming from the business world or the policy world or the legal world. That's really how you're going to affect change. So I love it every time a clinician gets excited, whether it's part-time or full-time about things that are in the non-clinical realm. So really, really enjoying the conversation so far. I'll punt it back to Alex for a question from his side and we can keep the conversation going. Alex. Great. Thank you, Shad. And let's shift gear to mentorship now. So, you know, we talk on the show about the role mentors play in our guests' lives and careers. And given the two of you are at two different points in your careers, I think there is very interesting conversation to be had here about mentorship from both the mentor and the mentee sides. So far, Zad, if you look back at the most successful mentorship relationships you've had as a mentor, what characterized those most successful relationships? On Adam's side, Adam, I pose the same question to you, but from the mentee side. So what has made your most successful mentee-mentor relationships different? So let's start there. Over to you, Farzad. Um, I wasn't a very good mentee. <laughs> well, uh, in the sense that I was, I had tremendous respect and I learned a ton from, from the, the folks I worked for and worked with. Um, but there's something to the, when people talk about mentor-mentee, that's a little too deferential for my taste. <laughs> and what I like in, in my mentoring relationships is people who don't feel like they're, you know, studying at the altar of some, you know, guru but people who have their own opinions, who have their own minds, who have their own insights, who I can learn from. It's not a, I feel it's like the, the arrow of that mentor-mentee feels too one-sided in the way most people talk about it. I get as much as I give in any relationship I've had, and certainly with Adam, I would say that was true. Over to you, Adam. I mean, I would say, you know, I've benefited enormously from uh, people in my life like Farzad. And I think there's, on the theme of what Farzad is saying, there's certainly an element of it that's coaching. Um, and what I found Farzad did exceptionally well when we were working together and since then is for him, coaching is like he's alluding to uh, about helping me find find a voice. And um, that doesn't mean it's like, you know, I'm watching him and sitting in the back of a room and taking notes on everything he does, it looks a lot more like him asking me to do things that are pretty challenging and sometimes completely unrealistic and working through that. And and that's uh, just a tremendous opportunity and uh, really fun. It doesn't mean it's stress-free. Like, you know, <laughs> there, were, there were some very stressful moments working with you, Farzad, uh, and I loved it. Um, but it's, so it's part-time Part of it's coaching. Um, there's another part of that relationship for me, though, that's part-time role modeling. Um, getting to see a bit more up close who this person is, how they live their values, and it's really hard. I, I think I haven't I haven't done this, but it seems really hard to be a good doctor, a good 
CEO, a good parent, a good friend, a compassionate, good colleague. Um, and so what I would say is if you have the chance to find someone that meets those metrics for you, like grab on because there's so much to learn about how a person structures their day or their week and finds a way to live their values across all those different hats that they're wearing in life. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll add to my answer one thing Adam said, which is I do think one requirement for being a mentor and probably a mentee, a good mentee also, is to be honest and open. Um, I don't think... I don't think you can be a good mentor if you're not authentic and and not transparent in a way that you wouldn't be with other people at work. So that is the I guess the one way in which my relationship with folks I've mentored has been different from the average person who works in at, at in the company or who worked in um, uh, in in the office of the national coordinator or in the New York City Health Department, is when I'm a mentor, I'm much more open about what's going th through my head so that they can see the thought process, they can feel the emotional process. Uh, and what, that, um, what the obligation that places on us is you've got to be an absolute leak-proof lockbox of discretion and and integrity um, because like it, it can be very tempting I'm sure as a person younger person in the know like oh I know something and if you if you violate that confidentiality and trust like you you're 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 gone that's that's it absolutely no I really appreciate that my second follow-up question goes to your point Previously, Farzad, about this differential nature of mentor-mentee relationship. So what do you think about reverse mentorship? Have you both been a part of a reverse mentorship? And can you share your thoughts about that? And for the audience out there, reverse mentorship flips the top-down traditional paradigm of mentorship. And so in reverse mentorship, colleagues pair regardless of seniority. So the most senior colleague can be the mentee and the junior can be the mentor. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I haven't formally been a part of an experience like that, but I think what you're hearing from us uh, is that there are various, maybe there's a number of uh, different forms that mentor-mentee relationships can can take and ones where there's a flatter dynamic that there are some moments where it is maybe what you're describing a reverse mentorship and some moments where it is a bit more traditional. That combination can be really healthy and, and really satisfying in my experience. Perfect. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Farzad. Uh, over to Shatter, next question. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Farzad. I really like, Adam, your point about how to find mentors. I think it's very holistic and much broader than what people usually use uh, in their criteria. So someone who's interested in public health may look up you know, a public health researcher who've had a huge impact on the field, and that's reasonable to do so. But I think finding someone who can model 
you know, good, compassionate clinical behavior, being a good person, being a good friend, being a good spouse. I think that is a different dimension. And that's something that more mentees can look for in their mentors. So I really appreciated that point. I wanted to learn a little bit more about your work, both of your work uh, during the pandemic and how you've interacted with different stakeholders. So Adam, you were responsible for helping to build a fast-paced organization advising on the COVID-19 response and leading initiatives in the Department of Health and Human Services. And Farzad, you obviously worked through Alidaid to help practitioners deal with COVID-19 through many approaches, including by advising their practices during the pandemic and, and helping them adapt to sort of newfound clinical and financial uncertainty that came with the pandemic. With respect to the, the different stakeholders that you interacted with in the last few years, and especially in those early days, thinking back the early half of 2021, how well do you think they were prepared and planned? And, and how well do you think they reacted to the enormous, uncertain, and often unpredictable changes that, that the pandemic brought up? And what made some stakeholders better prepared or less well prepared? And if you can offer any sort of practical things that stakeholders, whether it's you know, large stakeholders, institutional stakeholders like, you know, states, cities, sm hospitals, or smaller stakeholders like independent uh, physicians can do to be better prepared for the next big disruptive event. And so I'll start off with you, Adam, and then we can move on to Farzad. Adam, over to you. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, that's a big question. There's so much there. Uh, and I'll be really curious what you have to say on this, Farzad, because you were just in the thick of this. Uh, the few themes that emerge looking back is one um, just around communication. I mean, I think some of the people across a number of different organizations, whether it was city and state public health organizations or whether it was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, um, when people were doing something well, it was often around communication. I think about uh, Dr. Mandy Cohen, who now works at Allidade with Farzad, who held countless press conferences. And uh, I can't, uh, from from what I saw on the HHS side and uh, other experiences, it's, it's very challenging to be communicating publicly, communicating internally, communicating with your colleagues, with your employees, with your stakeholders all the time. But that's what needed to happen. Um, and I think we saw uh, how much people came to appreciate clear, consistent, honest, authentic messaging and, and communication. A, a second theme before passing to Farzad is there were also a number of organizations that found a way to take what was happening during the early days of the pandemic and use it as, as an opportunity to position the, the organization, the mission they were already driving towards and just double down on it. Um, I was recently having a conversation with uh, Sharif Onahal and, and he was leading University Hospital and the team there was in the thick of a difficult turnaround related to quality and safety and financial performance of a large public hospital system. And they were able to look at everything that was happening and, of course, meet the immediate needs, needs of uh, staffing, of taking care of patients in the ICU, but also continue on this journey that they were on around how are we going to reshape the entire culture of our of our team, of our hospital, uh, to improve on quality and safety both now and after this immediate phase moves on. Um, and so I think 
or I, I deeply admire leaders that were able to immediately be thinking about those opportunities in the middle of the challenges that were there. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Farzad? Um, one of the things that I remember, so that was, it was a, it was a horrible time. Um, and it was a time when we, we've never had morale quite as high as we did uh, during that, that three to six month period right after COVID pandemic started because we were of use. We knew who needed our help and we knew what we had to do, which was to help them. Those 600 practices, primary community, independent primary care practices, independent meaning they didn't have someone else to help them. And I was just looking at my emails and on March 6th, 2020, I sent out desperate 911 calls and emails to every person I knew who might possibly help with getting N95 masks this is March 6th uh, to our practices. And, and I, I, I said, like, we are desperate. We need, the, like, these, their supply chain is depleted. They're getting, they're, 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 they're at risk. They're going to lose people. If they get exposed to COVID, then they're out. Then the community primary care is out. And then we shifted after we, we didn't find, and no one helped. Let me just give you the punchline. Nobody helped. Not the big uh, group purchasing organizations, not the big health insurance companies, not the government agencies. Nobody helped. And we, had, we helped. We donated a couple of million dollars worth of stuff that we were able to source and get imported. Uh, like we became experts in importing masks from China because it had to be done. So we did it. We figured out they needed a way to do telehealth. So we stood up 150 practices on telehealth over a weekend. And so they could keep seeing their patients. Like we had to become experts in the PPP and the loan programs. Like we did whatever had to be done. And I think that's Hopefully, your audience won't be faced with that situation. But the lesson is, when it's time to help, you run, run to the fire. And there's nothing more fulfilling than being needed and being of use when you're needed. Thank you so much, Farzad and, and Adam. Very inspirational words. I wanted to spend you know 30 seconds just sharing my experience during the first six months of the pandemic because it really illustrates uh, some of your points. I caught just the first six months of the pandemic, and, and just as an aside, I really admire folks, clinicians and non-clinicians alike, like my wife, who worked in the hospital throughout the entire pandemic, because if the first six months were tough, I mean, imagine working two, three years during this entire process. Although Farzad, as you said, there was a coming together and teamwork and a lot of fulfillment, there was obviously also burnout as well, especially as the pandemic went on and the talk of like healthcare heroes and all of that stuff sort of died down. I just remember there was so much uncertainty in the first, you know, three to six months. So people like in our surgery department really held on to like every single word of leaders around us, whether it was the department chairman or the hospital CEO. And if leaders weren't stepping up, there was a chasm for new leaders to come in and have an impact. And, and so it was a disruptive event for people, like you said, Adam, 
who were inspired to really, really double down on their mission. But if that didn't happen, there was chasm for new leaders to come in and, and really have an impact. And we've seen, you know, what new leaders and young leaders like yourself can do and, and how much impact that they can actually have during such an event. But great conversation so far. I'll pass it on to Alex for the next question. Alex? Yeah, no, thank you, Shad. Just reflecting very quick, I love the discussion. And I think within the same spirit of the COVID crises, you know, I think crises lead to or show the best and worst in our human nature. And I think it's so beautiful how, you know, clinicians and the clinical community came together to deliver on their mission, despite the risk that those clinicians were taking. I mean, in a little bit of a similar spirit, but of course different, I did a part of my clinical practice back in Syria. And so part of that medical residency was actually in a hospital on the front lines. And, and you know, clinicians went there and, and we went there despite the risk. And I think just the discussion reminded me of this idea that, you know, in a moment of crisis, you can see the best and the worst in individuals. It's, it's beautiful to see that best of the human nature. But I want to shift gears to talk a little bit about Never Events. Adam, you've done great work in this space. So I'd love for you to tell the audience more about Hospital Never Events and why addressing them is so important. And I'd love to get your and Farzad's thoughts on what would be the most important policies that we can implement and put in place to address Hospital Never Events. So uh, let's start with you, Adam. Great. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're referencing this concept of hospital never events that uh, Dr. Dave Shoxi and I recently wrote a, a piece sort of just laying out a simple framework, which takes the idea of clinical medical never events, events like leaving a sponge inside a patient after surgery uh, or operating on the wrong limb and applies that to actions and policy level decisions that hospitals make. Um, and we specifically lay out, you know, five examples of hospital never events. Uh, I think the purpose of this is to be provocative, is to try to start a conversation about have we strayed from the rules of the roads that we want to have apply to hospitals, particularly potentially nonprofit hospital systems. Um, so the ones that we lay out are around things like a hospital should never aggressively pursue debt collection against low-income patients uh, who can't afford their bills. So things like suing patients for medical debts, garnishing wages, denying care due to owed debt. The next one is around um, community benefit. So we say that a hospital should never spend less on community benefits, like providing care to uninsured patients or funding public health programs, than that hospital earns in tax breaks from their nonprofit status. Another one is around price transparency. Uh, we say that hospitals should never flout federal requirements for hospitals to be transparent with patients about the cost of their care. Uh, and then two more, one around uh, hospitals should pay their workers a living wage and hospitals uh, should avoid delivering racially segregated medical care. You know, these are pretty, I think, relatively straightforward statements and yet um, the number of hospitals that when you start to break this down are violating one of these principles is is uh, the majority. Um, so I'll pause there. And, you know, I think a question I would pose to Farzad is what else would you add to this list? Like from the vantage point of Allidade working with independent primary care clinics across the country, um, let's take for granted that 
hospitals often are run by good people trying to do the right thing. Uh, and also there can be perverse incentives that can really uh, challenge other stakeholders who are just trying to take care of patients. So what else What else would you add to the list? I, I thought you had a great, uh, I thought you had a great list. And, you know, one of the ways to think about, like, why are we talking about hospitals, right, is that they became the most significant players in fee-for-service healthcare. Because in fee-for-service healthcare, you wait until someone has a stroke. And then we need a lot of infrastructure to take care of people with strokes. We got to get them into the emergency room and get them into the scanner and balloons in the brain and neuro ICUs. And like, that's really, that's really expensive stuff. And then the bigger you get, the, the higher rates you can negotiate with the insurance companies, right? So you get bigger and bigger, and that becomes for-profit or non-profit, right? That becomes a self-perpetuating thing, and you're doing good in the community, right? You're a force for good. We are here every day to save lives. That's what we do here. We save lives. And we train the next generation of doctors here who learn that, you know, the most important thing is to get the get that, you know, highly technically skilled balloon in the brain, right? And we don't, it's the water we swim in, and we don't even see that that's shaped by the fundamental financing system of healthcare, which waits until that person on the side of the street, we walk by that person, don't even give them a glance until they tip over, <laughs> Once they tip over, someone makes the mistake of checking to see if they have a pulse. And then they call an ambulance. They show up in the emergency room, and now it's a full court press. That is so messed up. And so a lot of, you know, the underlying things that I think we should be thinking about, and I think, you know, folks like Adam who get business degrees as well as MDs, are well suited to thinking about the underlying financial structures is like, why is it that we're even talking about hospitals having these special obligations? Well, because we've given them this special place because the fee for service system places them in this privileged position. Uh, but why, like, why isn't when I, when I was national coordinator for health IT and I would go visit Cleveland, they wanted to take me to the ICU in the biggest, most gleaming hospital. And I was like, no, I want to see the primary care clinics. And they were like, what? Those are, you know, these like shabby, you know, I was like, yeah, but that's, that's, that's where, that's where care happens that prevents that stroke. Right. So to me, the, the underlying question of, um, you know, what are, we, what are we looking for is at the very minimum, those hospitals should not impede the path towards a new, more moral payment and delivery system. Thank you, Farzad. And Adam, I love those points. And I think, you know, it speaks to the, to the idea that the structure of the system really shapes the behaviors of players in the system. And I think, you know, the individuals who designed the initial maybe fee-for-service model, I'm sure they had good intentions in mind, but maybe they didn't have the foresight to understand kind of the potential perverse incentives that could happen within such a, a payment structure. And so that's why I feel really excited that more medical doctors are 
you know, pursuing careers, whether full-time, part-time, and whatever type of engagement outside that traditional narrow route of clinical care, because we need more medical doctors who understand patient care very deeply on decision-making tables for a lot of factors that influence healthcare. I'm going to hand it over to Shad now for his next question, but really enjoying conversation from my side. Thank you, Alex. And then thank you, Adam and Farzad. We obviously, for our audience, have two wonderful guests here today. And so we wanted to offer some really practical advice to the MDs and MDs in training in our audience who may be interested in you know, public health or entrepreneurship or investing or any number of different things, but not sure how to prioritize between their different you know, non-clinical interests or between clinical medicine and their non-clinical interests. And so in a recent interview we had with global health advocate, Dr. Jeff Levinson, who is the CMO of C International, he emphasized the role of American doctors in helping their colleagues in underserved and uh, low-income countries. And he pointed out the need of delivering healthcare more efficiently. And, and he said, quote, it's not going to be American doctors traveling overseas to do it. It's going to be us helping our colleagues overseas to develop the capacity to do this work themselves. There's obviously a lot of work to do, not just in the public health space, but in all the adjacent spaces that I mentioned, not just domestically in low resource settings, but internationally as well. But this brings up a bigger question of prioritization. There's only so much one person or even one organization can do. Time and resources are obviously limited and the need for help always seems to outstrip the supply of available resources. And so for those in our audience who may be thinking about systems level changes, what advice would you, Farzad and Adam, have for them with regards to prioritization and planning? You know, they may be thinking, what issues should I focus on? You know, where do I want to have the most impact? Where can I have the most impact? Or how much time should I dedicate towards my non-clinical efforts? And how can these folks begin to answer some of these questions? And, and how have you personally approached this dilemma in your career earlier on and now? But uh, starting with you, Farzad. Um, the most important question is, what's the question? And early in my career, I was really interested in data and computers and technology. And so I thought the question was, um, can we use a computer for that? <laughs> that was the question. And I walked around looking at stuff saying, can we use a computer for that? What? How about this? Can we use a computer for that? <laughs> I thought that was the right question. And then um, Tom Frieden, my boss, and Mike Bloomberg, the mayor, said, how do we save the most lives? And it just floored me. It just it just devastated me. And 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 to this day, like I felt so ashamed that I hadn't thought of that. To start with that and work backwards from how do we save the most lives? That seems so obvious. Uh, and yet, uh, most boards of healthcare companies can't tell you how, well, given their position, how can they save the most lives. Because that's not the question they're asking themselves. Now, I don't know that that's the right question for everybody. For some people, the question might be, how do we address health equities? It might be, how do we reduce suffering? But ask what matters to you. Figure out what matters to you and work backwards from, from that question and test it. Thank you, Farzad Adam. Man, I don't know if I have much to add there, um, except to piggyback and Add an, another caveat, which is just, you know, like there's a lot of people that I think more and more are solving tiny little 
crossword puzzles that are really, really interesting. And I, I think actually I probably saw someone tweet this, so we can find who we attribute that line to. But, um, you know, that the, the world is full of more and more highly trained, highly skilled, highly degreed professionals that are solving really complex, intellectually fascinating challenges that probably have no material impact on real people. And um, I think just at least being conscious of that fallacy and keeping eyes open for it has helped me. Um, and look, lot, there are lots and lots of people who uh, don't have these choices, right? This is a conversation about if you're lucky enough to be able to pick the content of your work, pick your work based on the content, which is just a wonderful position and opportunity and, and uh, responsibility to be in. Um, so I, I think the only piece I could add, and I, I'm still trying to figure this out, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, uh, what exactly I'll be doing a few years from now, but I think making sure that it's not just a crossword puzzle is important. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Farzada. I'm reminded of what a lot of guests have said on our podcast, the essence is that they've led sort of emergent, but not deliberate lives. And what that means is they never sort of looked 15, 20 years into the future and said that I want to be the CEO of a big company or I want to have, you know, X, Y, and Z impact. It's more like you said, both of you have said, just observing the world, asking the right questions, understanding yourself and what's important to you, and then putting in the time and effort to execute on some of the questions that pop up. And as you do that, and hopefully as you do that well, and then you'll do it better if you're really excited by the question you're asking, more and more opportunities tend to pop up and you sort of make your way to some semblance of success broadly defined. And so I really, really appreciate you know those points. I'll hand it over to Alex to finish us off here, but really enjoying the conversation so far. Alex. Thanks, Chad. I guess just to finish us off, Adam and, and Farzad, how can our audience, you know, keep up to date with the impact that you're having and, and follow your amazing work and how they can get in touch if they want to? Well, we're both on Twitter. <laughs> and despite uh, despite the gentleman who's running it now, I think we're, we're still haven't found a better place to have some of those conversations. So I'm um, at Farzad underscore MD. And I'm at Adam L. Beckman, though Farzad's Twitter is far more interesting. But we'd love to talk with you, too. If you've made it all the way through this episode, feel free to reach out on Twitter or uh, to our podcast organizers. And uh, I think I can speak for both of us in saying we'd love to love to meet you. Awesome. Thank you both. It was a great episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. What a great episode with Adam and Farzad, and it just made me realize how much I miss these panel discussions. It's always nice to have two different perspectives or multiple perspectives during our conversations, and so really appreciated that part. I wanted to spend some time talking about leadership and, and how periods of uncertainty and rapid change can open up new opportunities for people to jump into, and I think this is especially topical and relevant for our audience members. You know, changes can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. There can be regulatory changes, legal changes, sociopolitical, cultural, or in our recent memory, change can be brought about by the pandemic, a natural event, something you can't necessarily predict with a high degree of certainty. 
Farzad mentioned during the podcast episode that during the pandemic, there was a coming together and a lot of teamwork. And certainly that did happen in spades, but in equal measure from my experience working during the first six months of the pandemic, and from my partner's experience who worked in the hospital during the entirety of the pandemic, there was also a lot of burnout and uncertainty. And the uncertainty was multifold, right? Because it was you know, psychological uncertainty, uncertainty about our personal, familial, and collective you know, health and safety, about our jobs and the security of those jobs, about our parents, family members, uncertainty around how the hospital could organize itself to drastically increase, let's say, its ICU capacity, or how hospital or provider systems with already slim margins uh, could financially survive with much of its somewhat profitable service lines shutting down. So people in, in the early days of the pandemic held on to the word of leaders around them just because of so much uncertainty that was going on, whether it was the department chairman, the hospital CEO, or the chief resident, whoever it was, there was a sense that you know the words of those leaders during that time, the actions of those leaders during that time, meant something and people rallied around that. And others also stepped up to the occasion to become leaders themselves, right? I think that's the element that I really wanted to speak about. I do truly think that during such periods, it becomes much easier in some way to get involved because the number of problems that need to be solved dramatically goes up all at once. And it suddenly becomes all hands on deck. You know, I think it's important as a leader or a potential leader, as someone who is ambitious to become a leader, I think it's important to run towards these opportunities and find a way to generate value for those around you while also getting crucial experiences that you otherwise may not have gotten during you know, so-called normal times uh, when a lot of those opportunities cease to exist. Sometimes you, know, you can predict that periods of rapid change are coming. Let's say you follow an industry and you know, let's say AI and you know AI is about to take off. And with those new advances, there's going to be a lot of changes that, that happen uh, in that particular field. And you can be you know, ready for it. Other times, you just have to be ready to jump in at, at a moment's notice. And so I just wanted to talk about this notion of leadership and how periods of rapid change and rapid uncertainties, sometimes you can predict when it's coming and other times you can't, how those periods can open up a chasm, a leadership chasm, an opportunity chasm that you can jump into. I think it's particularly relevant for our audience members who are always seeking new opportunities on and off the beaten path. That's sort of my takeaway from this episode and from our conversation with Adam and Farzad. I'll pass it on to Alex. Thanks, Shad. I want to go back to the discussion that we've had with uh, Farzad and Adam around uh, mentorship. And I felt that that discussion is very helpful in kind of broadening the definition of, of mentorship beyond kind of the, the standard notions. First, we talked about holistic mentorship, the idea of seeking mentors from whom you can learn the narrow professional skills uh, that you want to develop, but also from whom you learn how to be a good leader, a good friend, and a good partner. Also, we talked about, about the fact that effective mentorship relationships are ones where the relationship moves beyond the traditional notions of differential top-down uh, mentorship and more into the territory of flat mentorship relationships where both parties develop a friendship and a strong underlying foundation of vulnerability and respect. 
And I feel that those notions are very important for successful and productive mentorship relationships. And they were represented in Adam and Farzad's relationships. So I really enjoyed kind of having this the conversation around the topic with them. And uh, to the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.